Welcome back to Fresh New Shorts, new short stories from award-winning writers. Today's story is Playing With Dirt by John Blackmore. You can find it in A Physicist's Guide to Love, Another Natural Phenomena, available on Amazon. A woman loses her husband on 9-11, not from terrorists, but a simple, terrible car accident. Restlessly seeking ways to deal with her grief, she discovers bones in the yard of the great farmhouse her husband had always wanted, and a way to name and deal with ghosts. Playing with Dirt I found the bones on our property in the spring, some seven months after Jacob died. Such surprise, sweating with the labor of digging into the ground to put a fence post down and striking the nugget edge of hard white bone. It made me cry, but then small things did. Sparrows knocking into the big bay window, the last sliver of moon, a dozen eggs with one broken. But I let myself be that way. I was alone now, especially out at the far edge of our acre yard, the morning shadows from the farmhouse. Jacob had wanted it so badly, as long as a skyscraper to reach me. That first day I picked lightly about the narrow hole punched into the soil by the fence poster. You see, I didn't play in dirt as a girl. I didn't make mud pies or send paper boats down storm sewer streams. When I was a mother, I told myself, if we had had the children we dreamed of filling Jacob's three-story farmhouse, I would make sure they played with dirt. They would have dirt under their nails, in between toes, ground into clothes so it would never come out. Whole brown bathtubs full of children, splashing and singing, their little pink bodies always bearing one smudge of earth, like the lipstick trace of a kiss. It was two days of dainty picking with garden tools, the small three-clawed rake, the thin, long weeder, to pry out another bone. Finally, I brought out the spade, kneeling down and kneading shovelfuls of dirt. I placed the bones in a laundry basket, and at the end of each day I spread them out on a blue tarp, like scattered pieces from a broken jet. That's when the idea lit within me. Perhaps, perhaps if I found them all, they might connect. Perhaps, in a sympathetic way, it would influence the finding of Jacob's body. The flood of tiredness at the end of such a dirty day. Stripping off in the mudroom and up the stairs to the bathroom and leaning with one hand on the shower wall, watching my silty remains swirl down the drain. Leaving the lights off so I wouldn't see myself drying. Hardly needing a glass of wine to sleep me, even in the persistent moans of Jacob's farmhouse. A sound like the noises dogs make when they dream. I'd pretty much say with guaranteed certainty, they're sheep. Lambs, actually, Agatha Klontarf said. She was in a catcher's crouch near the scatter of bones, blades of light cutting through the barn's gap-toothed walls and roof. I thought so, I said, but I knew you'd be the expert. Agatha, she called herself Aggie, owned beef and blooms in town, a barely ten-minute broken-down pickup ride from the farmhouse. 
Her father had been a butcher, her mother a florist. Aggie was their only child. Red, white, and blue carnations, five dollars a bunch, stood in display buckets. A stand-up refrigerator held curly bird nests of scarlet ground beef. A name like Agatha Clontarf doomed me to a life without a man, she'd once told me. She called herself Aggie to soften the blow. You've cleaned these up, Aggie said. She was looking at the scimitar curve of a rib. It was smooth and dry, the odor of earth scrubbed off with lemon soap and hot water. She clucked her tongue at the layout of bones. Aggie's hair was bunched in pigtails, at odds with the rest of her. She wasn't much older than me, perhaps midway through her thirties, but she was born to be forty-five. Like young nuns who take the secret vow of middle age, and don't change until they shake off their chalk dust and ascend bodily to heaven. Where'd you find them? she asked. Out beyond the house. I was digging posts marked the yard. How did they die? I'd have to look at the legs and the heads. We could tell if they were butchered or killed by an animal. I nodded. What's this? Aggie asked. I followed her eye to one of the bones. She brought the bone close to her face and stared at it. What is it? I asked. She didn't answer at first, as if willing the white knob to tell its story, as if parts could relate the tale of the whole. I'll have to see. I'll take it to somebody. A second opinion. She took the bone and wrapped it in tissue, placing it in her pocket. I brought some tenderloin with me. We could fry it up with onions if you have them. You could use some meat. In Aggie's world, a good steak or fresh-cut flowers could cure everything. They were onions from Mexico. The kitchen cradled the sound of fat crackling in a pan. So what's your plan with the bones? Aggie asked. She cut her fillet thin, beautiful pink middle slices framed in seared charcoal. No plan, I said, the lie uneasy in my mouth. Just something to occupy my time. It's a good thing to be busy. I worry for you out here. You could have a new career in a museum. I nodded to be polite. I doubted I could be surrounded by the flotsam of so much death. But then, perhaps there was a comfort in the finality, the knowing, the certainty that death had occurred. I still had Jacob's clothes in his closet, in his bureau, as if he might show up some day, toweling off his hair from his time in the river, looking for a dry shirt and a pair of Levi's. Aggie helped me clean the plates. Are these special onions? Aggie asked. She tossed one of the onions up and down like a baseball. Not that I know. Onions affect me awful, but when you cut them... You didn't cry. Memory, for me, is no longer a continuous loop or film, nor is it an album, not even full pictures. It is fragments. It is ripped-up photographs. Through this past winter, the first one I spent alone in what is really Jacob's house, I often sat out on the porch wrapped in the candy stripes of a king-size Hudson's Bay blanket,
I stared at the blistering clarity of sun on snow and tried to repair the memories, put them back together, stitch things, mend, watching my breath disappear. Jacob died on September 11th, but it isn't what people think. It was just after nine o'clock in the morning. I was watching the second airplane, the UA flight from Boston, crash into the South Tower. I was so close to the television, I could touch it. My fingers stretched out to staunch the terrible burning holes in the buildings. I heard the knock on the door, but I didn't want to leave the television, as if taking my fingers off the screen might let the fire spiral out of control. Two police officers, a man and a woman, the bulky suitcase squareness of their bulletproof vests. One of them was missing a button on the coat. They even smelt of fire, as if they had stepped out of the television feed from New York and onto my porch. It was a gold button. You see what's happening, I said, knowing they must. They're flying planes into buildings. Ma'am, the woman said. She was the one missing the button. There's been a car accident. There are a number of ways to assemble a skeleton. You can glue it. You can drill holes into the bones and bolt them. You can do a combination of both, building cribs and bolting or gluing the bones to it. That's what they do in most museums. Underneath the bones, there are built metal supports or molds to hold the toes of Tyrannosaurus rex in place. I chose the simplicity of glue. I remember the construction worker who hung by his hat attached to the girder, I said to the man at the hardware store. I dumped tubes of crazy glue at the checkout. His red Lowe's store apron had Bill embroidered above his heart. He was tall, and his skin was smooth and dark, as if there were a thimble of indigenous blood in him. He said his family didn't have television when he was a kid. Have you broken a lot of China? he asked. I wanted to tell him the story, but I didn't want to be the crazy widow with him. Is China really made from bone? I asked. He shrugged. We use paper plates down at the fire hall. We burn them after. You're a fireman. He looked at me, and then he got it with a sudden flash. Are you a friend of Aggie's from Beef and Blooms? He asked. I nodded. Did you find a bone? I found lots of bones, I said. I'm gluing them together. His dark face paled. He pulled me away from the counter into the small alcove where they sold batteries and flashlights. You're gluing them together? Let go of me. He let go. I backed away from him. Yes, I'm gluing them together. It's a stupid thing, I know, but I have to report it, he said. Report? I angered easily now. As easily as I cried, I'm gluing together a dead sheep, I said. Aggie didn't tell you? Tell me what? That bone she showed me was a baby's. They never found Jacob or his car. Plunging as it did off the bank and 
into the deep, fast waters of the Wapiti River. Divers backflopped from their anchored boat into the current, their bright lights swallowed up by the hungry, dark water. One nearly drowned in the first week. How could you not find a car, I asked them. My God, how could you not find a car? In the fervor of the moment, people combed the banks for some hopeful sign. Perhaps he got out. Such are the strands we cling to. But eventually they lost heart. Dogs in search and rescue missions become depressed and won't eat if they search for too long without finding any survivors. In Manhattan, the canine team masters had to hide in the rubble to raise their dog's spirits, giving them the joy of finding someone, licking the face of someone who lived. I walked the Wapiti banks until early December. I was no longer looking for Jacob or his car. I was looking for a sign, some message in the baby talk of water. The police hadn't finalized charges against the driver who made Jacob swerve into the river. He had been in Jacob's lane, passing on a blind rise. Lawyers called our farmhouse offering me justice, a trust fund for the children. We didn't have any, I said. But you will, they countered. I had no answer to that, not wanting to engage them, because I knew they'd try and perhaps succeed in convincing me that the children I might still have would somehow be Jacob's. My last day by the river in December, Santa drove by in the pickup, like the one that caused the accident. I waved from the gully and he called out, Ho, ho, ho! He had a full gun rack ready to blast errant reindeer. The next morning I stood in the thin, straw-colored sunlight, watching the local Christmas parade run by the KFC. Kids ran along with the fumy flatbed trucks and hasty floats to catch the blizzard of candy canes, wintry blue energy popping in the crisp air. Ho, 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 I said. A boy looked up at me with an anxious, hot chocolate-stained face and asked, Will Santa really come? I didn't want to alarm you, Aggie said. She was arranging red and white roses with baby's breath in a vase on the counter. So you're going to let me continue digging up body parts in the field? You live in an old farmer's house. People buried their kin on the property. It's the way it was. It's probably some damn pioneer. You should have told me. Aggie stopped fixing the flowers. I thought you were a little crazy with the way you were going on with the sheep carcass. But, Christ, she whispered, so God perhaps wouldn't hear her. It's the first thing that interests you in months. I was worried, so I left it alone. Maybe I made a bad decision. I chewed on my thumbnail. You know, I had this thought. I thought that if I could build the whole skeleton, I said, but Aggie had broken from her focus on the flowers and came over to hug me. I'll come by tomorrow morning. We'll have some cured bacon and have a great breakfast. Then I'll help you clear out the barn. Driving back to the house, I didn't know when I had decided that I was getting rid of the bones, but decisions seemed to arrive like that on my doorstep.
I didn't press for manslaughter. In the end, it was reckless driving. He was only 18, but his youth was already gone. I could see that in the courthouse, the way his eyes were pulled to the ground, unable to lift their sight up from the floor, from the dirt. He never looked at me, and for that, I was thankful. I didn't want any words or condolences, as he had already taken my most intimate moments away, as if he somehow knew them all, as if Jacob in his last seconds had transmitted them to this boy, this stupid boy driving too fast on a winding road because he was late for meeting his buddies at Jerry's pool hall. I thought my clemency might coax the river to release Jacob, but December chilled into January and February. Last month, I woke up on the couch to the television news and saw the huge beams of light shooting up from the remains of the World Trade Center, like headlights from the bottom of a lake. Bethany! Beth! I heard Aggie calling from outside the farmhouse. She would have bacon and brown paper. I was out at the edge of the property, staring down into the hole I had dug. Rain had made its edges more jagged than softer. Beth! I clambered into the hole and I hid, holding my knees, leaning against the earth wall. Never had I been such a person for dirt. I rested my head back against the muddy side, staring up into the spring lemon morning sky. The wet earth soaked into my jeans. Jacob, Jacob was a dirt player, a mud lover, a puddle stomper. He was the one with hard scrabble plans and a wild horse scheme. He was the one to do the work and plant and harvest and feast. I was the one who dreamed, the one who hoped, but never put the seeds in the dirt. A shadow fell into the hole. Jesus, look at you, Aggie said. I didn't look up. Don't you think we should try to find the rest of that baby? Find out who he was, or maybe it was a girl, a little baby girl. Bethany, I mean, wouldn't you want to be found? Nobody says the baby was lost. I do. I saw her shadow crouch down. I asked Bill Grimes to come over for breakfast, she said in a conspiratorial tone. He's the fireman. I turned to look up at her. He's down the road looking for you, figuring you went for a walk. He'll be back soon. I thought I could see a white hint of something in the dirt, though perhaps no more than sunlight. They'll never find Jacob, will they? I said. Aggie clucked. The wapiti. I looked back down to the puddle in the center of the hole I'd dug. The wapiti. As if the strange native name told a story. I sat up and extended my hand so she could pull me out. I straightened my hair and slapped the mud off my pants as we walked back to the house. I better change, I said to Aggie. I stripped out of the muddy clothes in the bathroom and caught a glimpse of my nakedness in the mirror. It startled me at first, but I stopped to look at this woman, 
Suddenly this other person, not yet thirty, I thought, there is a pang deep in my belly, and I put my hand on the white skin. Perhaps Aggie was right about meat. Bill smiled as I came down the stairs, the smell of bacon blooming in the house, the sound of voices talking. Such strange things now. Aggie handed me coffee. I'm sorry about the other day, Bill said. I didn't put it all together, and I was on the rescue truck. I'm so sorry. Bill jumped in, Aggie said, into that current, into that cold. They tied a rope to his leg and he dove into the river. Bill was silent. It hurt him to lose to rivers or fires or twisting metal, to all the takers of life. Agatha put a hand on his shoulder. Aggie told me yesterday about the big hole in the back. We should fill it in before a deer or other animal falls in and breaks its leg, he said. I had not thought of the potential cost, the other disasters. He took a step towards me. I was frozen, suddenly afraid of what he might do. He held out a white handkerchief. He wiped a smudge of dirt from my cheek. We hope you enjoyed today's story from Fresh New Shorts. Rate us five stars and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. The ebook A Physicist Guide to Love by John Blackmore is available on Amazon. Come back and listen to us again.